Hi everyone, it's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode. That sort of dark moment unleashed a whole lot of people and invigorated, reinvigorated a whole lot of people who really believe in our country and said, no freaking way are we going to let this happen to America. And so I, I think we're on the right side of that clearly and and we'll we'll win win that battle in the long run. I'm Ken Harbaugh and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Pat Ryan, a West Point grad and Army vet who just won a hotly contested special election in New York's 19th congressional district. Pat, congrats on the win and welcome to the show. Thanks, Ken. Good, good to see you. It's been uh, it's been a journey the last few years for both of us. <laughs> I know that 2018 class. I don't know if anyone's going to write the book, but they should. There was just this this feeling in that group of congressional candidates in 2018 that we were stepping up for uh, historical reasons. I'm so far off script here, but it's great talking to uh, <laughs> to a friend of some years because uh, I feel like, you know, we can reminisce a little. But did you have that that same feeling? Because most of us, I don't think, had running for Congress on our uh, on our bucket list or on our dance card or whatever. But that 20 16 election just was a gut punch for the vets who served, who saw this new commander in chief coming in with no moral claim to that, uh, to that position. And, and we stood up and that I think began the, um, the, the pushback, the resistance, if you will, uh, take us back to, to that moment for you in, I'm guessing 2017, or maybe it was the day after the Trump election when you thought, I'm going to do something about this. Yeah, we had we had actually just we were scheduled to close on a new house that we had bought and I remember being so excited about that with my wife and also like really depressed about what had happened with the November 2016 election and having this pretty hard conversation with her of like I think I need to do something more here and I think that might mean that our lives are going to get upended a little bit. And little did I realize that a little bit was a lot. Um, But, uh, you know, I think looking back, and I hope that this proves to bear out over the longer period, that sort of dark moment unleashed a whole lot of people and invigorated, reinvigorated a whole lot of people who really believe in our country and said, no freaking way are we going to let this happen to America. And so I, I think we're on the right side of that clearly and and we'll we'll win win that battle in the long run. We seem to have a history of that as a country, dark moments that, as you put it, unleash something about our better natures. And I think history will look at the Dobbs decision as another one of those dark moments in in your very brief campaign and in a lot of the press you've done afterwards, you said that that your your race, your your message, your campaign uh, was about choice. It was a referendum on choice, but it, it was also a referendum on freedom more broadly. I am sure that your constituents, when you're out on doors, understood the threat to reproductive freedom, but 
how did you talk about the the larger assault on our freedoms more broadly? So we talked about, you know, an awful lot, of course, about the clear and, and sort of very present threat to abortion rights, reproductive freedom, which people felt so viscerally. We talked about what um, Justice Thomas and, and a lot of other far right folks are saying about what comes next in terms of other foundational rights and freedoms, LGBTQ rights, voting rights, even the, the Supreme Court decision to further weaken the, the EPA um, is very resonant here where we've had major water contamination issues in a lot of our communities, especially our communities of color. So all this cumulatively, plus the January 6th hearings that are continuing to really show clearly, even more clearly what happened, have all kind of come together. The other thing that has not gotten as much sort of national or whatever press coverage is the other half of this campaign was really talking about the economic pain that people are feeling. And, you know, our other campaign ad was me and a, actually a bucket truck, uh, hammering our local power utility that's been ripping off customers for the last year at one of the worst points for people to have to pay more for anything. We were seeing people getting 10, 20, 30 times higher utility bills than they were supposed to because the company, their billing system failed. And rather than owning it, they, they passed that all on to customers. So we call them out. We've been open this whole investigation. And I had more of those conversations uh, talking to people at doors and at events about cost of utilities, cost of food, cost of housing, cost of prescription drugs. And so I think that also is under the umbrella of freedom, though. The idea that people are so, so worried about making ends meet and the economic pressure that they feel like they have no slack or no freedom to just take a breath or, or be able to sort of have some choices uh, in their personal lives and their family lives. So I do think it's all linked together. And we've been clear that the accumulation of sort of monopoly corporate power is a big, big part of, of why we've gotten to where we are. Yeah, Pete Buttigieg uh, does a great job talking about the economic components of that freedom. And there's, of course, that that great phrase, freedom from fear, freedom from want. You said you felt the ground shift in your district in just the last week or so of the campaign. When you're out on doors having those conversations, how did you pick up on that shift? Was it just a sixth sense or were there a couple of conversations that hit you that you took back to the staff? Um, there are definitely some conversations that really stuck with me. Some of them were really early. So our whole campaign was sort of coincided with the leak of the Dobbs decision happened right at the time that we learned that there was going to be a special election, which was only in early May, even though it feels like it's been years. Uh, and so some of the very first conversations I had as the campaign was forming were, were at rallies and protests across the district and in our communities here where people were openly weeping, people were pissed. I mean, people were people were feeling not just that they were personally impacted, but that fellow Americans and certainly family members and people they loved and cared about would be profoundly impacted by this decision. And that energy and that um, sort of righteous indignation is how I've thought about it and I've heard others talk about it, really fueled ultimately a huge turnout in our special election of a, you know a lot of democrats but a lot of other non-democrats who also felt 
that this was had crossed a line and really sort of hit and and broke through a guardrail of sort of shared American values. And so throughout the campaign, there were a bunch of those kinds of moments. Another story that really stuck sticks with me is um, I walked into a little retail store in one of our most rural areas in Sullivan County in Cunyonga Lake and Main Street clothing retail business. And the the gentleman who is the owner, once he I told him who I was and I was running for Congress, in front of his whole, a bunch of customers in the middle of his store, he just started crying and telling me how he and his husband, this gentleman was white, his husband's black, have struggled not just with being openly gay, but also uh, racial discrimination and how this Dobbs decision to them was really like shook them to the core to the point that they felt like everything that they had had finally some, a little bit of security and feeling that they could just live their lives and that that was now under threat. And, and you think about that ripple effect for millions, tens of millions of people, that is what ultimately I think fueled people to stand up and say, like, this is not who we are as a country. We just had Jim Obergefell on who shared that same sentiment in just the most gutting way. He talked about standing on the steps of the Supreme Court in 2015, having felt that sense of history and the victory that his lawsuit brought about for millions of couples who just wanted the same rights as everyone else. And now with a radically different Supreme Court seeing that right and other rights under threat. It is characteristically American, though, how these creeping encroachments on rights tend to be ignored until they affect you or someone you love. And finally, the dam breaks. And it's, you know, it doesn't say the best things about our um, about our instincts as a country. But, you know, the guardrails do eventually go back up. And you've described your win as an example of the Democratic guardrails um, checking maybe and I'm putting your words in your mouth here, but judicial overreach. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think the Kansas referendum is even more telling, I think, here of how out of step the Supreme Court now is on certainly abortion rights, but clearly more broadly other rights when you see that result. But it is clearly judicial overreach. And the irony of, you know, that being done by a group of people that have railed against judicial overreach for decades now is I also don't think lost on people who pay attention and you know Americans feel this in their gut that's what I think and they're willing to tolerate some degree of the sort of back and forth but then you hit a certain point and it it does it's a little you know as you're alluding to it's a little little messier than we'd probably all (laughs) prefer uh democracy but it works it works I'd like to believe in the in the long run. What do you make of the yeah. the case made by some legal academics that these decisions should be left to voters and legislatures and that, you know, the Supreme Court is simply returning the decisions to where they they belong. I have a pretty strong bias against that, but I, I won't uh, I won't prejudice your answer. Um, how do you respond to that? I think I agree with where you that that um, from from what you're saying that returning something where we know what the outcome is going to be and it's going to result in less rights for Americans is not, I think, what our system is intended to do. The history of the court has 
almost exclusively been about expanding and protecting rights, not taking them away. I mean, there's obviously a few very notable exceptions, but that, that usually gets corrected in the long arc of the court's history. But I also just think that the very cynical use of states' rights when it <laughs> is convenient uh, is just such a tired play. I mean, my opponent in this special election for months tried to just dodge the issue of abortion rights and reproductive freedom. He was totally silent after the, the Dobbs decision came out. And then when we finally forced the case in a few debates, he just did that typical, well, the, you know, the court has now returned this to the states. And what I pointed out to people was, yes, and when you were a state legislator, which you were, you voted against these rights. So, you know, at the end of the day, the, the procedural dodges are not going to work, I think, because the extreme side of this has shown where they want to go. And, and I don't think you can put that back sort of in the bottle at this point. And the cynicism of this court is just palpable when they talk on one hand about returning decisions to the states. And I'll just focus on Clarence Thomas for a minute, Justice Thomas, um, in arguing that those substantive due process um, decisions should be reviewed. He, of course, leaves out Loving versus Virginia, the one case that would personally that is him. foundational to the existence, to the legality of his own marriage. Exactly. Right. And I think when it comes to fundamental rights, they trump democratic impulses that you know sometimes have cultural components that blow at the winds. You, you have fundamental rights that are sacrosanct, and uh, and this court is is threatening those. Mm-hmm. I think this, the result in this special election makes me m- much more hopeful about. Americans stepping up at a critical moment. This is one race, it's one district, it's a special election, there's all the caveats. But this is my community that I, my family's been here five generations, like we're raising our kids here. I mean, to see my community step up to the plate in such a big way at such a pivotal moment, like I am so damn proud that, that we sent this message. And I do think that that will inspire other people just like Kansas inspired us. I mean, after Kansas, we saw a huge boost in our volunteers and grassroots financial support to the campaign in, you know, very skeptical, cynical press saying, oh, maybe, maybe you, maybe you were right to center this thing, even though we've told you for months that that's sort of a, a third rail that you shouldn't touch. You've talked a lot about Americans stepping up, not just voters in the New York 19th. I take it that you do see your win as as portentous. What advice do you have for Democratic candidates and the DCCC, who, if I'm not mistaken, didn't invest in your race? Uh, what words of wisdom would you share for Dems running in November? So the DCCC did invest in the race. So I just want to put that out there. And we appreciate that. Vote Vets, uh, who I know you know and love, were, were huge and were sort of the cavalry that arrived to to help us in a big, big way down the home stretch, and I'm forever grateful to them. But um, I think it's important to say every like I am bring great humility to what we did here, and don't think that I'm one to be giving <laughs> advice to people that have been doing this a lot longer uh, and 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 better than me. The issues and the positions we took obviously matter 
but the way in which we took them, the willingness to just stand up and like plant the flag and say, this is so important that we are willing to explicitly put it out there to ignore all the pundit (laughs) advice that we shouldn't center our campaign around this because it's just too damn important. It's too foundational to our country to ignore that would miss really what's happening. And I think that is the essence of leadership really is to be willing to do that and take on that risk, knowing that like all the data and the numbers said that probably wouldn't have worked for us, but that willingness to fight and be clear about what we stand for and clear that we believe that we're on the moral high ground. I think that's what actually energized people to come out is, is showing that fight. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) I love this this quote from you in the immediate wake of the win. You said, we are at a moment where people are needing to see the fight in us. This is what we believe, and we're going to stand up and go all in, not poll test it, not triangulate. I got to imagine that having a very compressed congressional campaign was in a way a huge advantage. You didn't have time to poll test. You didn't have time for the consultants to come in and and tell you to to go against your instincts and and focus group everything you know yeah. you were just Pat Ryan with the baby Bjorn uh, walking <laughs> around the New York nineteenth making your clips. Yeah, it, it's it was liberating actually to just crazy idea say what you believe, but obviously to have that informed by what you're hearing on the ground. Uh, yeah, I think certainly for you know people that have been in these campaigns, you understand how all the forces that come in and try to dull down. Uh, the humanity in in you as a candidate and what you believe, and um, seeing that selectively ignoring that works out uh, is is also encouraging for the future of our politics. Do you worry about losing some of that humanity in 
in the swamp. I mean, for context, uh, those who don't know you, you're going from being an executive, Ulster County executive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, you get to make decisions. You, you People do what you tell them to. Um, you get to make a real difference. Like on the day you decide to fill that pothole or whatever it is, to the U.S. Congress, where you're going to be butting heads with with people who, let's just be honest, you you don't even respect, much less want to work with. Yeah, when when this all happened, sort of out of the blue, a few months ago, I really debated. And for it probably doesn't translate in all states, but in New York, county executive is sort of like a um, basically a mayor of about, in my case, two hundred thousand constituents in a upstate New York county. So it is an awesome job, and we've been able to like really turn projects, do things, guide the community through the pandemic. I am as eyes open as I can be in terms of how different things in Washington will be, um, but I just, I just think it's too damn important. The existential nature of where trust is at in our in our federal government in Congress. The, I'm sure you've seen this, the, the Pew polling, every year they, they test Americans' trust in different institutions. And the latest numbers are just brutal to read. The, um, they list about 80 different groups, and the groups you'd expect are sort of at the top of first responders and, and nurses and, and so on. The second to last is a member of Congress, 9%. And the only job below it is a used car salesman, for real. I'm not making that up. Uh, They're at 8% trust. What's encouraging to me is local elected officials in that same poll are at 22%. And that needs to come up too. But there is an ability where if you're more rooted at the ground level and you can actually show tangible help and, and, and connection to people, you can start to build rebuild that trust gap. And I've seen that in the last few years in local government, and and I it's obviously harder to do in Washington as a legislator versus an executive. But that's the work we have to do. Like that is the literal essence of the non shortcut path to fixing our democracy of just rebuilding that trust from the bottom up. I take it you've also seen the poll that showed that for the first time since these kinds of polls have been taken. Threats to democracy are at the top of the list of Americans' concerns over uh, the economy, uh, over yeah. the possibility of war with Russia even. It's threats to democracy yep. that are at the top of that list. What do you make of that? I saw that come out, I think, on one of the Sunday shows the week before my special, basically. And I, I turned to my wife. I was like, that is validating what I'm hearing on the ground, actually, that people are feeling this deeper sense that something is just really awry and really more deeply foundationally at stake right now. And I think being able to bring words to it as a threat to democracy is really important that a lot of people have been working, you included, I think, to sort of put it in that context because that then becomes like a unifying umbrella under which a lot of people who might have different reasons to not be unified politically and otherwise can say, no, like we believe in democracy and we see what's happening here and we want to be on the right side of that. And um, 
So I don't think that has actually happened by accident is what I'm trying to say. I think that's been, it requires reminding people that all of these issues, like in that poll, abortion rights, I think was below that. But I think what that poll misses is that taking away reproductive freedom is a threat to democracy, I believe. And I think that people understand that the threat to democracy to me is sort of the umbrella layer. And a lot of these other single issues, which you can't really pull it this way, but these single issues all tie to that sort of overarching set of threats. And that's what I think has really shifted the political ground. Because now you can go on the offensive and say, we've seen what the other side is going to do. We have to go on offense and fight now to restore these rights and and to protect democracy. Is that why it's taken so long for this issue to come to the fore? I mean, the insurrection attempt was 20 months ago. And people like you and me have been beating this drum since then that, and even before that democracy is, is at risk. Um, But I guess it's just taken the, the aggregate effect of all of these smaller assaults on our freedoms to wake people up. I think so. I think that there's so much going on in people's lives, the economic pressure and insecurity that people are feeling like, you know, it's really hard and unfair to ask people to worry about a more ethereal, theoretical thing when they literally can't put food on the table and keep a roof over the head. So, so much of what we talked about in the campaign here was that like, really, it has to be a one-two combo of economic relief and fighting for fundamental rights. And they're both necessary. Neither are sufficient alone because one without the other just sort of gets you in real real deep trouble and sort of gets you on the path to authoritarianism And if you study history. How did your military background inform your your campaigning and, and how is it going to affect your your job, your, your day-to-day in Congress? Well, on the sort of messaging and connecting with people front, I think talking about something like abortion rights from the frame of I fought for these rights uh, really opened the aperture for people that might be not always instinctually voting for me uh, to, to do so. I got this awesome email yesterday or two days ago from someone who said their 80-year-old dad had voted Democrat for the first time ever in my special election because of my position on abortion rights. And that, that surprised me um, very pleasantly <laughs> because I think it shows that, I mean, that 80-year-old gentleman's not personally affected by this decision, right? But he's got family that probably are or could be. He's got friends that are or could be. And he understands that, you know, that that's our responsibility really as Americans to to think about others. And that's, we haven't seen that a lot, <laughs> you know, in a while here. And that is what actually makes me most optimistic. And then to actually answer your question more specifically, I think uh, just the, the high pressure nature of a campaign Uh, There's a lot of moments where I've reminded our staff that once you've been shot at, everything else is relatively easy. I know that's sort of cliche and a little bit crude, but um, just reminding people that we can get through it. uh, You know, uh, there are a lot of folks in much more difficult situations than us at this very moment. And just keeping that uh, 
that perspective. I got to say, being a dad is the thing that most grounded me throughout this. Though that's, uh, I wasn't a dad in 2018, and uh, now I've got two, and um, that has kept all of this in perspective <laughs> throughout a bunch of tough parts of the campaign. Yeah, um, you have said that it is a really scary time to be a dad. I think one of your recent tweets talked about the toughest part of your day now. Um, you know, isn't getting uh, a tough question at a town hall. It's dropping your kids off at school. Yeah. It's a sad statement in my, in my, um, sort of closing of my stump speech throughout the, especially towards the end of the special election, I'd ask people to remember how they felt at a few key moments over the last sort of year or so. Um, one of which is seeing the pictures for the first time of the third and fourth graders in Uvalde and like just really ask people to take a second and not skip past that and remember that and think about how outrageous that is. And that if we can't solve a problem like that and find some sort of political and moral courage to find a problem like that, we don't deserve to be in office at any level. Th those things, again, I think that's gun violence uh, is another issue that really connects with a broad set of people who feel that as, as parents or teachers or, you know, just people worried um, as they go about their day. I want to believe that as a veteran, you have a special kind of moral authority to talk about something like that. And, you know, I'll go back to how we started this conversation that that whole class of veterans in 2018 who who stepped up and are now leading in Congress and, and speaking on issues like that from a place of authority and experience. And while that gives me incredible hope and I look at your potential to lead on issues like that, I'm also really alarmed at the number of our fellow veterans who have taken the other path, yeah. uh, who either you know believing the lies have taken on that ultra MAGA persona and are all in, like the Navy vet who shot up the FBI office in Cincinnati after the raid at Mar-a-Lago, yeah. or even worse in my opinion, and, and this is what I want to put to you, the veterans who cynically prey on on folks like that, the the JD Vances and the uh, and the Eric Greitens and the Doug Mastrianos who should know better. I mean, we're talking about Rhodes Scholars and and Yale grads here, but who, in the pursuit of power, do and say whatever they they have to, and I. I think we're beginning to see a surge of them on the right, kind of the opposite thing that we saw in 2018. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think that is a extremely dangerous force in our politics because it's done very deliberately, very cynically, uh, and purely for personal political gain of power. And I mean, there's nothing more antithetical and dangerous to democracy than than that. And so we have to call that out. Like, um, I'll come back to the veteran thing, but my opponent in the special election, just in a recent interview, he, he painted himself as a, a moderate, just in a recent interview, put out assertions that our special election was somehow rigged in the way that it was called by our governor, which is obviously just not what happened. And that, those are the things that we can't just sort of swallow. We have to, every time, 
every time something like that is put out, we have to directly confront it because those are the seeds of sort of real danger uh, and threat. But but yeah, guys like Greitens and, and Vance are. Um, it, it, I mean, I know you've been doing some work there and have done some work there uh, effectively in calling that out. And I think we need to, and I appreciate that. Uh, and, and I hope all Americans do, especially on the Greitens race. Um, I, I think we have to just continue to assert the the critical difference between sort of, I mean, it's a little wonky, but nationalism and patriotism, where, you know, this very dangerous divisive use of pride and and belief in a lot of their hearts in in a well-intended way that I'm proud of our country and it turns into this dangerous often violent nationalism and again we've seen that throughout history versus patriotism which to me I think is inherently unifying and recognizes our imperfection but that we have to work to improve it and bring people together as we do. And one of the things that I'm have been obsessed with and continue to be obsessed with is as Democrats reclaiming at least equal, if not disproportionate share of owning patriotism, because I think so many of the core values of the Democratic Party are about that broader set of patriotic American values of, you know, E pluribus unum, taking care of vulnerable, leaving no one behind. I mean, uh, I know I'm preaching the choir with you, Ken, but we have to remind people of that in a way that broadly connects. I think that is really well said and a great note to end on. It's it's why I have this flag behind me because the side that flies it right next to the Confederate flag, they don't get to claim patriotism. Um, That's as much our right as, in fact, more our right as folks who truly believe in democracy and elections as anybody's. Um, Well, Pat, thank you so much for coming on. You are one of the guardrails of of democracy. Um, (laughs) And you've got another election right around the corner, right? You got to hold this seat, don't you? Yeah, in 69 days, uh, but who's counting? Uh, (laughs) We have another election. In uh, it's a slightly different district because of redistricting here, but um, it's going to be one of the top ten or fifteen house races, and now a, a hold priority at the national level. So we get right back into the fight. I mean, the good thing is we built an awesome team. We're not going to change at all our, our message and our intensity and our conviction, and so we can just kind of hopefully keep building and and build on the momentum here. And uh, my opponent in uh, the November race. Some of his greatest hits include uh, cheering on and sending off two buses of protesters to the January 6th Stop the Steal rally on on that day uh, from our community. He's taken multiple donations from Rudy Giuliani, who's uh, clearly just a traitor at this point, I believe, and has sort of pandered to and refused to condemn active chapters of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers here in our community that that support his campaign. So true threat to democracy. And again, we have to just call that out and not pull our punches in terms of what's at stake and, and what the other side is, is trying to do. Yeah, we do. Uh, we'll keep it up, Pat. Let's stay closely connected. I'll be following the next 69 days. Good luck. <laughs> thanks, Ken. And thanks for all your work, too. It's good, good to be with you. 
Thanks again to Pat for joining me. To learn more about Pat and to support his November campaign, visit patryanforcongress.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at patryanuc. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.